This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. Blessings to you all around the world. Thanks for the emails. Love it when it comes from the heartland and also from abroad, from around the world. They've the beauty and the magic of the internet. There's some really great things about it. Today is a special show. I have moved through my life. Certain books have had a profound influence on it. And the guest today wrote one of those books. As soon as I say the name of the book, you'll know who I'm talking about. The Way of the Peaceful Warrior it was a life changer. And I was saying to other guests before we came on that one of the best parts about this job is, uh, it's not even a job, about this uh, privileged seat that I get to sit in is you get to meet your spiritual influencers and heroes and have a conversation. His new book, though, is really just like Beyond Belief, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, the true story of my spirit, spiritual quest. I loved every page. What an honor to finally welcome to the family, Mr. Dan Millman. Thanks for coming on. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for inviting me, Paul. I uh, appreciate you. Uh, first, before we dive into a million things, I just wondered, how have you done over the last two years with COVID and how has it affected you and the way you move through the world? Well, recently, we've uh, had friends, near misses, friends who've uh, tested positive and, and come down with it. Um, so far, my, my wife and I and my two daughters and their husbands and three grandkids right here in Park Slope, Brooklyn, New York, um, have been healthy and we've remained that way. We moved from California, um, Joy and I did uh, about eight years ago to Brooklyn, New York. What a surprise, I would have never predicted it. I was a California boy most of my life, but that's, that's uh, we just wanted to be close to family. That's our center of gravity now. My dad was a Brooklyn boy and I have a soft spot for Brooklyn. Doesn't it just have such a beautiful vibe in terms of community and an old time fellowship there, at least to my spirit memory? Yeah, it, it really does. Uh, we picked up on that right away, among other things. The population density allows for great walkability and many, many cafes. And we're a few blocks from Brooklyn's Prospect Park, where I spend, I was there biking around it this morning, uh, earlier. So uh, we're in the park about five days a week. Uh, it's, it's an amazing place. And as you may know, you will probably recall, near the end of the book, I, I mentioned that, walking in the, in the park. You're a huge nature guy and an exercise guy, and we share that in common. There's something about movement that for me brings flow, and then nature is connection. It's like an easy portal. Both, both. I think many people share that value. The Japanese call it forest bathing, uh, and it, it has many healing qualities. And I'm not even getting metaphysical here or esoteric. Just anybody knows that walking in a forest is so refreshing. The oxygen and everything feels... Well, more natural. And, and nature has been my primary teacher always. And scientifically, there's the biophilia effect, which we've had scientists on. Your body changes when you move around, when you literally your hands touch the dirt. Your body releases enzymes and hormones that make you happier. Absolutely. There's a wonderful quote from the movie Zorba the Greek. Anthony Quinn's character says to somebody, if you could dance what you just said, I might understand. So movement, movement, you can't beat movement. Huh? There's also an ancient proverb that goes, I hear and I forget, I see and I remember, I do and I understand. 
Dan, after all these years, what still compels you to write and teach and share? Huh. That's a good question. I, I've thought about that. Um, in terms of what compels me to write, um, you know, George Balanchine, the dance choreographer, once said, I'm not looking for people who want to dance. I'm looking for people who need to dance. And as it happens, I'm not one of those who need to write. Uh, Isaac Asimov, who was amazingly prolific, wrote something like 126 books um, on every topic. Most people know him from science fiction, but he was a science writer as well. Uh, he once said, if, if I had six minutes to live, I'd type a little faster. <laughs> he, he needed to write. And many people do. They just write their whole life. But I, I believe that Peaceful Heart Warrior Spirit may well be my final book. 18 books over 40 years, it feels like enough for me. And this was a great way to culminate the process. So I'll continue to teach where I'm invited. I love teaching. I move to influence others in a positive way. If I can, it makes my life more meaningful. Um, but as far as the writing, long form writing goes, I think I, I can rest now. I give you permission. That like, uh, <laughs> just, uh, you have done so much. Does sharing creating you an expansion though like when you're sharing what you've discovered you find it expanding you oh absolutely in fact i think that's why um life led me to the four archetypal mentors uh real people of course but that's because i was open you know it, it actually struck me um i don't know what age i was exactly but or that moment but it was a turnaround moment. You know, when I was young, as you know from reading uh, the book, um, I was really into self-improvement. I mean, I took memory courses and speed reading and juggling and ventriloquism and sleight of hand. Um, I, I love to learn and improve. And one day, though, it, it hit me that no matter how much I improved myself, only one person benefited. But if there was a way, and I didn't know, yet know how, but if there was a way for me to touch other people's lives, that made my life more meaningful. To me, that was what matters most. I almost feel like that's sort of wired into our DNA. Like when we share or serve selflessly, not from the ego, something in our DNA vibrates higher. I feel something. And you might say that's metaphysical. It's probably that too but I've done almost a thousand of these and that seems to be a universal truth. It feels like it. You know, one of the most spiritual movies I ever saw and one of my favorite all-time films um, is Groundhog Day. And most people laugh when they hear that because they remember it, if they remembered it at all, as a, as a rom-type uh, uh, you know, film uh, with Bill Murray and Audie McDowell, I believe. Um, and... Yet that film, more than any other, and I've seen some quote-unquote spiritual movies and read these kinds of books, but this, at all roads, eventually, this fellow lived day after day after day after day, the same day, and he tried everything. He exploited people. He got money. He did this and that because he knew what was going to happen that day. And eventually, though, all paths led to service. And that's the only game in town. Eventually, we realized that, that sense of non-self-referral, turning our attention out into the world. As one of the four mentors in the, in the book uh, mentioned, uh, it's a wonderful quote, when walking by a mirror, notice the frame. Rather than always focus on our image, look at the frame, the world around us, 
and start to pay attention to that. The happiest people have their attention outside themselves. That's a universal truth. And you reference one of my all-time favorite movies because ultimately when he puts everyone else first, he's freed literally and figuratively. And then he doesn't even mind being stuck in the matrix or the, the, the circle. He, because he's found himself. And I would recommend that movie to anybody who hasn't seen it, Groundhog Day. How big a factor has curiosity played in your evolution? Yeah, I, I'd have to define, I'd have to describe myself as a, as a curious person. But I think it's actually more a sense of disillusion. Curiosity sounds like a positive trait, um, um, this, despite its fatal effects on the proverbial cat. Um, you know, but, but disillusion sounds negative to many people, and, and yet it's, it means a freeing from illusion. And like many people, I was seeking some sense of satisfaction, of, of happiness, fulfillment. And I was pretty lucky early on. I, I happened to come from a stable family, loving parents. Nothing was perfect, obviously, uh, but um, I had a good foundation. And, and I had early on success. At 14 years old, I was the state trampoline champion and led to a world championship and so on. Um, but it didn't make me happy. And sometimes, you know, in, in my seminars, I, I tell people, you know, the, the best thing about going to college is you find out it doesn't make you happy. Um, those, those people who never went to college may go for years or decades thinking if only I'd gone to college, I'd be happy. If only I'd found my soulmate or improved my relationship, I'd be happy. If only I made more money, I'd be happy. If only, if only, if only, it goes on. If only I retired, if only I, I'd had, if only I hadn't had kids, <laughs> on and on. <laughs> and then one day we realized that, you know, there is no such thing as future happiness. So this process of, of disillusion that I came to, it wasn't this, this isn't going to do it, that isn't going to do it led me on that spiritual quest, uh, the ups and downs and the bumps in the road um, to find out where is happiness, where is fulfillment and what matters most. Very similar. I was a type A perfectionist, overachiever, athlete, everything, and succeeded by society terms, but could not find peace. And it's, it's, it's almost like Siddhartha when I, I had to do, I'm glad I did the whole loop. But when I finally let it all go and just got into the flow, now there's so much peace. And then the irony is my ego is reminiscing about the days when I had a lot of ambition without remembering the unhappy part. <laughs> it's still trying to sell me that idea back. Like maybe we could just somehow do it. But I'm saying, sorry, that's bundled when there's all that egoic attachment. It's just the way of the world. But I'm glad I had to learn it through experience. And I would, the irony is back then I had a lot to tell everybody. Now I feel like I kind of am at peace, but who am I to tell anyone anything? I'd rather ask. Well, there's an old saying that the only people who profit from the experiences of others are biographers. <laughs> you have to think about that a bit, but um, I, I don't really believe that. I, or I wouldn't have written the book because I wanted to, through my journey, I, you know, you don't write a memoir thinking the whole world's going to uh, pound down your door to read about precious you. And that's not really why I wrote it. I mean, I did have a rather interesting life, but everybody, their, their story is their treasure. There's no story in the planet exactly like yours or mine or anyone else's. So that is our treasure and it's valuable. 
Um, but the reason I wrote the book is because it is about the true story of my spiritual quest. And it will shed light, I think, on anyone's quest, whether they call it a spiritual quest or a quest for happiness or fulfillment. We're all on a, on a journey together. It's a common human journey. Um, and so I hope uh, people will relate, even though the particulars are quite different, there's a universal theme. And, and it happens that the four mentors who, who I studied with for mo almost two decades, over one, then the next, then the next, um, they represent some primary approaches that people use to uh, gain access to the numinous or the transcendent type of experience. But, you know, something you said earlier, actually, I need to uh, acknowledge this because so many people look at Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and they see everyone else having such a good time. I don't want you and I to have this sense of, oh, aren't we at peace now and happy? Yes, you and I may both have a sense of a deep down sense of fulfillment, but emotions come and go. Sometimes I'm angry or upset. All these emotions still come and go in my life. But there is a sense of accomplishment now that I have more life to look back on than forward to. I'm, I'm, next month, I turn 76 years old. So this was a good time to write the memoir um, while I had my memories, but also had enough perspective to look back on my life uh, and, and sort it out. What a beautiful nuance. I agree. And I want to also have that disclaimer. I have all the emotions, but the predominant overriding frame of the mirror is peaceful. But I, I acknowledge the other one. You should have seen the other night I was watching a playoff football game because I still have that championship athletics. And in the last five minutes, my internet went down. <laughs> and I knew it was a test. <laughs> but here's the great part. Then it would like come on for a second and you'd hear Joe Buck say, you won't <laughs> believe that play. Let's show it to you again. And then the internet went down. And I literally, excuse my friend, said, you guys are <laughs> fucking with me to my angels and guides. <laughs> and after about six minutes of this, I fucking was pissed. And then when it finally came back on about two minutes there, the game was over and had some wild ending. And I just, at first I was pissed and then I just laughed. I said, the joke's on me. And then I went back and I got to see the highlights, but I'm, I had watched the whole game and then the ending cut off. It was great. I wasn't peaceful. Let's just say that. I'm going to own that. Well, there, there's there's perspective, right? So so we all have our ups and downs, of course. And I, I want to be clear on that. Uh, I can be useful to people because I am, you know, just well. One of the basic themes that I repeat several times in in the new book is that every teacher is human, and every human has flaws, foibles, and failings. You, you're talking about the book. What was the genesis? What made you think, I want to create this memoir? Was it just decided to come out of you? Was it a feeling? Were you taking notes? You know, I, I really, it's a bit mysterious even to me because uh, my, my life has been more like improvisational comedy than, than strategic planning. <laughs> I, I, I don't have a list of books that I was going to write. I didn't write a, a book after Way of the Peaceful Warrior. I didn't write a book for 10 years. I felt, okay, I've said what I had to say. Um, but then I met the warrior priest, the third of the four mentors I described in the book. And, and I was so inspired by this flood of content, fascinating stuff that I began to formulate a way to share it. And, and the, the book came out as sacred journey of the peaceful warrior. After that, uh, 
No Ordinary Moments, A Peaceful Warrior's Guide to Daily Life, and so on. And so each book was like, imagine an airport that's fogged in with planes going down the various taxiways. I never knew which one was going to take off next. But finally, a book would grab me by the collar and say, write me. And that's really how it went. Uh, so it just seemed natural at this point in my life to go, you know, maybe it's time to share the true story behind the story of Way of the Peaceful Warrior. And will you cover some of the foundational pillars that you lay out? I like the way you put the book together. Yes. Um, it starts, I have to start, you know, I, first of all, when I read a memoir, unless there's a very good reason to do so, I, I try, I don't really like books that feel to me a bit self-indulgent, like they start talking about their ancestors, their great-grandparents, their grandparents, their parents and their histories. And I, I so get to the point. Um, this, this book, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, began, uh, the, the first memory dump, download, was uh, over 500 pages. It was overwritten. It contained all kinds of information and background and details. And I had to then, once I did that, is like, okay, what is going to interest my readers? Um, so I wrote a second draft, and then a third, and then a fourth. And over time, a couple of years, um, I ended up writing nine drafts. My dear wife, Joy, uh, wife of my wife of 46 years, uh, my North Star and guardian angel, she read every draft, offered her feedback. Uh, it's always been useful uh, and for all of my books. And around the seventh draft, she said, Dan, you know, I see this and this and a few of the people, because I went through the four mentors with you. you know, and she said, I see it a little bit differently. I have a different take on it. What if I wrote something and I went, what a great idea. So she has about 10 pages total sprinkled throughout the book now, which I winnowed down. I pruned from a 500 page uh, unruly hedge of a book to a, a bonsai. I hope you'll agree. Um, Jack London once said it takes hard writing to make easy reading. And I wanted to make it very inviting. And, and I'd rather the reader at the end go, oh, I wish there were a little more than uh, when's this going to be over? It is lean and economical. And God bless your wife for reading all these drafts. That's a true friend. And I'm going to have to press the pause and say, what is not the secret, but what are the processes and principles that can keep someone in a 46 year relationship that thrives. I don't think there's anything more challenging or anything more rewarding. And especially in our society with so few, so few healthy concepts and ideas and tools. Well, first of all, I did have, as I write about in the book, um, I did have a, a sort of a marriage, uh, a trial marriage, a marriage on training wheels uh, for eight years where I really saw myself and my immaturity and self-absorption. Um, and, and I described that. So I, I had a practice uh, and I, I was ready and much more mature and had learned from my first mistakes um, by the time I met Joy. So, so what I would say in my experience, what you need more, even more than communication, even more than good sexual chemistry, what you need to maintain a relationship is friendship. She is definitely my best friend. She's in my corner. I'm in hers. And we, we've really got each other's backs. Um, so we have differences of opinion at times, of course. 
But over time, you know, it took me 25 years of marriage practically to realize she was not criticizing me. She was improving me, <laughs> sometimes enthusiastically. Um, yeah, and so she continues her, her quest. Um, and uh, I continue in my way as well. Um, but I think that's the main thing, that, uh, that friendship. Wow, beautiful. Thank you for being so open. Did the teachers appear because the student was ready, as cliche as that sounds? Well, I, you know, I don't think it's a cliche, but I think it's misunderstood. That, that saying we've all heard about when the student's ready, the teacher appears. Most people, if they had to explain what that means, might say something like, well, this, when the student has, is deserving enough or initiated or prepared enough or had suffered enough, then some teacher like Socrates will appear in their life to guide them or kick them up the path. But what I believe it means, when the student is ready or paying attention, then the teacher appears everywhere. Because many people are concerned about, well, how can I find the right teacher for me? Especially maybe after reading my new book, they're going to go, well, I haven't had teachers like that, but yes, they have. Books can be teachers. Uh, you know, I, I describe in the book uh, a profound lesson I learned. I was stressed out working as an administrator in an office, <coughs> and I... Uh, felt pressure rising in my head, you know, maybe a headache coming on. And I looked out the window and I saw a cloud passing by. The cloud was not dawdling behind the wind. It wasn't trying to race it. It was just flowing along with the wind. That cloud taught me a profound lesson. In that moment, I found myself taking a deep breath, relaxing my body and doing everything I had to do uh, before the end of the day. And I was going, why was I pushing myself? Why was I feeling stressed? I was stressing myself. Nobody else was. So again, uh, our teachers are everywhere. When Andre Gide had this great quote, he said, everything that needs to be said has already been said, but it needs to be said again because no one was really paying attention. How much reading do you do? I can tell you have a great knowledge of quotes and others. Well, I'll share a personal note with you, Paul, that um, it's been my hobby or calling, really, for the over 40 years to collect quotations. When I was uh, a kid still, I looked around. One day I looked around at the world, everything that was happening. I guess I was emerging into adolescence, and the world was uh, in some ways starting to disappoint me a bit. Uh, and I was looking for wisdom. And so I began to collect quotations. And the first one I came across was probably from Ben Franklin, who said, a penny saved is a penny earned. I just happened to come across that. But then I found a quote that seemed the opposite, which was um, nothing ventured or risked, nothing gained. So I was saying, well, should you risk or save? What, what should you do? I didn't know. And then I, you know, I came across that proverb, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. But then... You're never too old to learn. Or, or birds of a feather flock together. Oh, but opposites attract. And it went on. And these quotes contradicted one another until I came across one that really hit me. And everybody knows this. It's become cliche. A chain breaks and its weakest link. Well, now, by this time, I was jaded. It was like, yeah, I know that. But 
The only thing is I couldn't find anything to contradict that. If we break 10,000 chains, we know where everyone is going to break. But it's not just about chains. It's, we also break in our weak link, physical, emotional, spiritual, sexual, financial, social. So there's wisdom in there. It's universal and it's consistent, as, as consistent as a law of gravity, which works whether we believe it or not. So that's when I started seeing the power of quotations. And I've been collecting quotes, favorite quotes for uh, 40 years. I have over a thousand pages, not a thousand quotes, but a thousand pages of quotations that I'm uh, cleaning up as a project right now uh, to get them in, in some kind of semblance of order. I have no idea how I'll use them, but that's universal wisdom, pithy wisdom. We, we hear something like uh, Mark Twain who said, I've had many troubles in my life, most of which never happened. Why do we laugh? Because we can recognize that in ourselves. I always say, let me know when it happens. It's when, even to my own mind, or if I'm, if I'm with a group and some people start throwing out stuff and I'll say something completely absurd, Dan, and they'll go, what, what, are you, what are you doing? And I said, I'm sorry, I thought we were playing. What if something bad happens? <laughs> well, you know, maybe when I get old, really old, all I'll do is, is spout quotes because, yes, they do flow forth. I hope it doesn't bother anybody, including your listeners, but quotes pop up. They just pop up in my head that seem apropos for the moment and make a good point. Mm, well, you can do it here. I love it. And when I was reading the book, I see it more as a, a way of life, a way of being. For the listeners around the world who I encourage to pick up the book, there's a link on the page. Can you kind of introduce them what it's like, how they might find their own way in because it's as unique as each listener. Can you uh, share some tips on how they can open themselves up to get into their flow, into their peaceful warrior, a peaceful heart and warrior spirit? Let me first share how I came up with that term organically. It wasn't some kind of brand idea. Um, in fact, I was a young college professor teaching at Oberlin College in Ohio and I was in the physical education department. I taught courses like Mirthful Movement, a circus course. And uh, then I decided to share some things I'd learned in, in various martial arts, uh, Aikido and Tai Chi particularly. They both happen to be internal arts. Uh, and I was going to call it naturally the way of the warrior. But then it didn't seem to fit because both these were non aggressive arts, they're more receptive and so on. And so, a light bulb went on and I went, wait a minute, why don't I call it the way of the peaceful warrior? And that's where the term uh, came alive in me. And years later, when I wrote the book, it just seemed like the natural title. So that, that's how it came about. But people then asked me, well, how can I become a peaceful warrior like you, Dan, projecting all this stuff on me, this sense of perfection and, and accomplishment and all that. And I, I made it clear that Everywhere I look, I see peaceful warriors in training. Uh, it's not some club you can join or special status. And the reason I call everyone a peaceful warrior in training, I view them that, male, female, it doesn't matter the age or background or culture, uh, is because all of us are seeking to live with a more peaceful heart, a sense of serenity, equanimity within the chaos and change of everyday life. And at the same time, we have to recognize there are times we need a warrior's spirit to roll up our sleeves and tackle what life offers us. Daily life is a form of spiritual weight training to strengthen our spirit. If you don't lift any weights, you don't get stronger. 
So that's what I mean by peaceful heart, warrior spirit, and why I, I view all of us as peaceful warriors in training. And you know, when I've taught seminars for, for again, four decades now, pretty much, um, it, it's very interesting to me that about 50% of the people who show up are male and about 50% are female. There's that balance and peaceful warrior reflects that balance. So how people work their way in, they're already in it. Daily life, I view earth as a school for souls and daily life is our classroom. And it's guaranteed to teach us everything we need to learn in order to evolve. You know, a man who read Way of the Peaceful Warrior said to me, Dan, you know, now that I've read your book, I'm really interested in spiritual practice. But I, I've got a wife and, and three kids. How in the world will I find the time to do that? And he came to understand that his wife, his children, his full-time job would demand more and develop him more than sitting in a cave and meditating. I know because I've done both. And so people don't have to go elsewhere, do something else. Um, I write in my stories how I went, I was gone. Well, I make it very clear in this true story, no fiction. In the, the latest book tells the real story of how I was gone for 90 days, a, a full summer, uh, leaving my, my first wife and uh, young daughter uh, comfortably ensconced in a, in a dorm where, where we were dorm directors at Oberlin. And I went on a research grant around the world. And that's when I ended up meeting, uh, encountering the school founded by the professor during part of that adventure around the world. Um, so that was part of my process. Now, in the book, I cover first the foundational elements of uh, a young risk taker still in diapers, already taking risks, uh, growing up and discovering an old trampoline and who would know that jumping up and down on a trampoline for me would lead to a college scholarship and, and so on and all that followed. Yeah. Uh, but my life as an athlete and, and what lessons I learned, and athletes learn a great deal, but often they don't know what lessons they're learning because they're too focused on scores, winning and losing and so on. And then from there, I, I, I go into the four mentors and each one very different approach to the spiritual process radically different from the others. Uh, and in, in, in total, I think, I hope the reader will end up having a much more sophisticated perspective on this thing we call the quest. Do you want to talk a little bit about each of the four mentors you had, just to give an overview, the professor, the guru, the warrior priest, and the sage? Well, even those, those terms, I think, convey a flavor for each. Uh, essentially, the professor had a technological approach. It was an objective school of enlightenment, where if you just do the way these exercises, uh, a vast array of meditations, breath work, body work, movement disciplines, uh, 30 or 40 different kinds of meditations, if you do all this work in the group process and the models and the levels of consciousness and the ways we release tension to get to profound quantum leap in uh, eventually that would lead to enlightenment and but it didn't and then uh, but I was vastly improved but then I did the advanced training which I where I learned more than the first 40 days uh, and then there was more work and but for various reasons I, I moved on and, and met 
the guru. Now, the guru was uh, a whole other approach. I mean, he, he once said, I'd rather beat you with a stick than tell you to meditate your way to enlightenment. He was a radical teacher, brilliant, uh, American-born. Uh, so, so, you see, I never gravitated toward just a fascination with, oh, if it's Hindu, it must be good. Or if it's uh, Chinese, it must be good. Or if it's Japanese. Um, there are, I was an American and I needed to find something within this culture. This culture. I, I had studied you know, various aspects of Buddhism and Vedanta and so on. And, and uh, I wasn't unsophisticated, but this fellow uh, was educated in philosophy at, at uh, Columbia University and then went to graduate school in, in Stanford in uh, English. He was a brilliant writer um, and communicator. And he happened to have the mojo, the juice, where people just sat and gazed at him as he gazed around the room and transmitted this divine city, as he, as he called it, and this force. Uh, and th that sense of communion with the divine through this guru was the approach, his method, if you will, uh, not techniques of one kind or another which often were self-involved. But then I discovered, and I, by the way, I was with the guru for almost eight years. This wasn't one of these spiritual vagabond things where I collect an initiation from this person and then from that person. Uh, I worked in depth. It was a way of life, moment to moment. And there were certain disciplines. And then the, the, the warrior priest was an adventurer, a spiritual rascal, um, but he had an extraordinarily original way of approaching in a practical way. And he was really, that was an apprenticeship for me. Uh, tools that I could actually share with other people to make a huge difference. Some people have read my book, The Life You Were Born to Live. Um, it's a way to access uh, immediate, deeper uh, self-knowledge about the core issues of one's life and the strengths and hurdles you're here to overcome. And I, I learned the basics of that from him, as well as for example, he taught uh, spiritual growth through knife fighting. And there was a test at the end of that training. Um, and I described that uh, at an advanced training in Hawaii. And then I had a personal relationship. All, we traveled together and, and so on as, as colleagues at one point. Um, and then finally, I discovered the sage. Now, I wasn't really looking by this time. After the first two teachers, I felt I'd had the creme de la creme. Uh, but that's, I just ended up, they ended up appearing in my life and it was okay. And the sage brought me back to earth, uh, uh, the most practical and in a weird way, the most transcendental teaching of all. Uh, so I won't say too much about that, but it, it, we still have a relationship, an ongoing relationship. We stay in touch, uh, and that marked my transition, my evolution from a young athlete to a teacher of practical, some say spiritual life skills that we really didn't learn in school. And uh, I was able to present this approach to living called the Peaceful Warrior's Way. Um, so I hope that gives a somewhat of a tantalizing summary. That's a magnificent overview. And also the guru fell from grace in your eyes, right? And in that, he also taught you things. Exactly. Um, and it's, you know, it's a repeated story, almost archetypal story 
there are so many gurus and spiritual authorities that we learn either ran off with the money or had sexual relationships inappropriately um, and exploited people. Um, but yet, I don't want to turn any of them into caricatures. I'm grateful to all my teachers. They were tremendous influences and positive influences. But I learned lessons of another kind as well from the experience with the guru. Uh, there are some gurus who uh, maintained a uh, 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 certain integrity, uh, but it's so easy to become corrupted by the adulation of devotees. And in this case, when someone has, well, you know that old, again, it's another cliche, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. It, the tendency is there, it doesn't always happen. And I've been fortunate to have a wife who'll kick my butt if I do anything out of integrity. Um, so I've managed, my foibles and quirks are relatively minor. So uh, that's the best I could say. Not that I don't have them. Well, it's a great cautionary tale for all of us because it's like holding the ring too long in Lord and the Rings. That exactly. sense of power, it, you, the ego says, I can hold the ring. I can be the guru. And that's so often... You know, you fall, you know, like Icarus from the sky. Yes, exactly. Were you shocked when The Way of the Peaceful Warrior became such a huge success? And how did you deal with that level of success? You were a young guy. Well, actually, uh, I didn't have much to deal with. I mean, when the book first came out, the odd is um, it was titled, so the, the editor thought it would be clever to write a basically true story because Way of the Peaceful Warrior was based on autobiographical material. I'd never written a book before. And so I said, well, I'll base it on my life. I had some few things happen to me worth mentioning. And I remembered an old gas station attendant. I called Socrates that I met about three in the morning in an old service station. And for those who don't know my, me or my work, they did make a movie out of that particular book with Nick Nolte playing the old gas station attendant and it's called Peaceful Warrior. Um, but when the book came out, because of the subtitle, and this is before the internet, um, what happened was the bookstores and the major, major buyers for the book chains, uh, they didn't know where to put it because it said a basically true story. They said, is it fiction or nonfiction? Well, it happened, it was both. And they just didn't know what to do with it. So it got into very few stores. And so the hardback edition died very quickly, uh, sold a few thousand copies. But we started getting an unusual amount of mail from people saying, you know, they wrote to the publisher saying, this book changed my life, this book changed my life. And I was going, really? Because I didn't know. I thought a few college students might like it. I had no idea. Um, but yet the book was out of print for three years. It was, I figured I'd had a brief career as a writer. And then this old gentleman, I call him old, but he's younger than I am now, um, was a retired publisher, discovered an old hardback out of print copy and said, I'm going back into publishing. And he said, I'm starting with this book. And then the word of mouth started. It took him like a year to get the book chains to put one copy of the book in each store. So it didn't happen like some runaway New York Times bestseller. Now, now the books have sold about 4 million copies. It's out and published in 29 languages. Um, but it took a while. It had a slow arc, but it's still going. It, um, that's what amazes me, that the word of mouth and so many people have been touched by it. Men, women, Republicans, Democrats, it just cuts across every line because it speaks to our own quest. And, but it was time to write the story behind the story. 
And that's why finally, it's like bookending the first book with the last. Peaceful Heart Warrior Spirit tells the actual true story and reveals a few things about Socrates as well. Can I give the big Socrates reveal away or do you want to keep that secret to the listeners? I'm actually not so secret. It's right there in the preface, but um, I, I'd like to keep it in the proper context. So uh, l- let's just say Socrates and I have a lot in common. I loved it. And I had a feeling when I read the book that it was a great confirmation. And how does one live from their own inner Socrates? Well, that's one of the larger themes I, I address. And it's really a mission for me. Uh, for each of us, to stop second-guessing ourselves and trust the process of our life unfolding with its bumps, its peaks and valleys, its difficulties and its joys, to trust that process rather than shoulda, coulda, woulda, I wish I'd done differently. My life should be different than the way it is. Um, And I think one thing that helps is to cease the bad habit of comparing ourselves to other people. Because again, I mentioned earlier, Instagram, Facebook, and many young people are depressed because they look at their friends who look more glamorous and just seem to have their acts together. And they say, look at me in my best moment, happy at this place or that place. I'm traveling, I'm doing this. And isn't my life wonderful? And then they feel bad in comparison. But as soon as we compare ourselves to someone else, we either feel superior or inferior. And it's a profound disrespect for our own process. You know, way back when I was a young coach uh, and and I taught beginning gymnastics classes at Stanford University, and I I realized that some people learn somersaults more quickly than others, but those who took longer to learn them often learn them better than those who learn them faster. So that's why we need to respect our own way of learning, our own way of living, and to that's what I mean by trusting ourselves and our, in our lives. Dan, do you feel that essence, that inner Socrates moves on beyond mortality? I don't know. And that's the most honest answer I can give. When, I do know this. When I die, my body will decompose. And um, my highest aspiration at death is to become a really good compost and, and feed the world that has fed me. Um, but beyond the beyond, even though we read books about near-death experiences and people have seen the other side, which many people gravitate to and love because it represents a hopeful belief, but nobody really knows. It's a mystery. And even if there are many lives to live beyond this one, maybe if reincarnation is a description of an actual reality, we're probably not going to really remember details about past lives or future ones. So we might as well live this life and make the best of it and appreciate the life we were given. And, and with all its pain and difficulties, there are so many moments of beauty and and potential and promise. Um, So that's how I can answer the question about the beyond. Are you at peace with that knowing that mortality is imminent and could be any moment, any day? Do you feel good about the life you've lived? Yes. Looking back, uh, I feel like I, I've made some, some contribution. You don't have to be a writer or a teacher. Um, we've all contributed to others around us a kind word um, in some way to make the world slightly better, even our small world around us, friends and, and people we love. Uh, we, can, we can be part of the solution, you know, not the problem, as they say. 
Um, so yes, uh, I am content at this point in my life. And, uh, you know, I, I created a meditation that I practiced for a year and a half every day before um, I ever taught it. And it's, I call it the Peaceful Warrior Four-Minute Meditation. Uh, it's based on the principle a little of something is better than a lot of nothing. So for those who might think it would be good to learn to meditate, but maybe they're not ready to commit 30 minutes or 20 minutes twice a day or whatever it is, um, this is a four-minute profound meditation on the process of dying. And you might say, oh, Dan, you know, how many people are going to go? Oh, wow, a death meditation. I'm so there. But no, actually, it's the most powerful way I know of to really begin to reappreciate the life we were given by seeing what we must relinquish uh, in the process of dying. I, do, I still do this almost every day, this meditation. And it's an online course. It's inexpensive. It's at my website. I have several online courses, a Peaceful Warrior Workout, for example, four-minute workout, which is part of my overall workout uh, that I do every day. Uh, you know, older people need more exercise than younger people, just a different kind of exercise, maybe not as poundy or as intense, but I, I do a good workout each, each morning that starts my day. Well, I have to let you go, I know, but I first want to say thank you, and I hope you'll come back. There's an open door here for the Peaceful Warrior that is you with the beautiful heart. And I wondered if you had any words of inspiration. We talked earlier about no one's perfect and finding peace, but I can guarantee these words will fall on somebody's ears who's probably going through a hard time, who's suffering, who might be at their nadir, a low point, maybe contemplating whether they're even want to stick around here in this mortal coil and through the grace of whatever it is found us today talking what would you say to them dan if you came across them in a gas station like you did socrates so many years ago even as they feel like they're suffering uh and life is difficult and they don't see maybe a light yet at the end of the tunnel um i would tell this story too very brief uh when aldous huxley the author, who also was a spiritual explorer, a global heritage. He had, he'd studied traditions all over the world. When he was in a hospice near death, his good friend, Houston Smith, who wrote the book literally on world religions, Houston said, all this, after all your searching and exploring, is there anything, is any way to summarize everything you've learned? And Aldous said, I'm a little embarrassed to say that I can summarize at all in about six words try to be a little kinder and that's the advice i would give to anyone even those who are at the downtime and, and, and immersed in themselves and their own suffering find a way to be kind to someone around you and that can be a new beginning You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light. <laughs>